Have you ever wondered why the Christian life isn't easier? You don't have to look very far around the world or even maybe in our own lives to see believers who are in trouble or facing difficulty and challenges. Things rarely seem to go smoothly for God's people in the world. And this was just as true in the Old Testament as it is today. Moses and the Israelites had been slaves for centuries in Egypt. Now, in chapter 3 of Exodus, Moses had had this incredible experience of the burning bush. I'm sure you know of it. And he met with God and he'd been commissioned by God as the leader of God's people. And he then faithfully done all that he was commanded. He'd gone to the elders of Israel, given them good news from the Lord. He'd even gone to Pharaoh and asked that the Israelites would be set free. That they would be allowed to go into the desert away from Egypt. But Pharaoh didn't do as he was asked. Instead, he punished the Israelites for daring to make such a request that he increased their workload. And the Israelites, in turn, then blamed Moses for their situation. In fact, they even said they wished that Moses was dead. So at the end of chapter 5, Moses comes before God and he cries out with these words, Why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. It wouldn't be too far to paraphrase Moses' question as saying, God, what are you playing at? God, are you faithful? What kind of God are you? Now, we may think those kind of questions are wrong. You know, who are you to ask God such things? But They're questions which are asked by many Christians and by many non-Christians as well. They even appear in our Psalms. When we look around the world and we see disasters occurring daily, when we see millions of Christians facing persecution and punishment just for being Christians, what kind of God doesn't rescue his people from oppression? What kind of God lets them be slaughtered? Closer to home, what kind of God allows Christians to be mocked and made fun of at work? What kind of God allows his people to struggle with uncertainty and lack of confidence? What kind of God lets our loved ones succumb to sickness or death? But God is not silent in the face of these kinds of questions. He answers Moses. And this evening, this morning, I mean, we're going to look at God's reply to Moses how God reassures Moses that he is still in control, that he hasn't forgotten his promises to the Israelites. And actually, Moses needs to realize something important about God, that God is the Lord. Doing so, we're going to highlight four things about God. He is the God who rules. He is the God who remembers his covenant promises. He's the God who judges and redeems. And finally, he is the God who doesn't need our help. Now let's start with that first one, the God who rules. God starts his reply to Moses by reminding him 
everything is under control. Things may look as though nothing has got better. In fact, they look as though things have got worse. But God makes it clear, despite what Moses thinks, the freeing of the Israelites is closer than it has ever been before. Moses has not seen what God will do to Pharaoh, but now, verse 1, he will. God will use his mighty hand, his strong power against Pharaoh. And the situation will be transformed from Pharaoh refusing to let the Israelites go to him driving them out. Pharaoh may look powerful. He might seem to be the one in charge, but really it is God who reigns. And for all his grandstanding, for all his pomp, Pharaoh is under the sovereign rule of God, whether he acknowledges it or not. This is what God has already told Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.19. Pharaoh's rejection of Moses' demands were part of God's plan. He had ordered all things according to his purpose. The temporary increase in suffering of God's people was planned by God in order to do an even greater work that would not have been accomplished otherwise. God is not dependent on people's permission to accomplish his work. Every sin, every act of disobedience will be used by God for something greater. And that's true for us today as it was for Moses. God still reigns no matter how the world may look to our eyes. Events will never seem to slip out of God's grasp. His plans will always succeed. We may feel powerless by the world's events, but tomorrow, when the news shows another slaughter in the Middle East, or the latest political crisis, whatever it may be, or even if a colleague at work sneers at you just because you're a Christian, Remember, our God is the God who rules. Now, we could spend all day discussing that one point, but in the passage, God continues in his reply to Moses. He declares that he has not forgotten his covenant. It brings us on to our second point, that God is the God who remembers his covenant promises. You could hear that God is in control. You could hear that God is working out his plans and you could think he's like a cosmic chess master. Yes, he'll win the game, but does he really care for the pieces that he plays with? But God makes it clear that he loves his people. Moses might feel as though God is not helping the Israelites, but he is. The God who declares in verse 2, I am the Lord, is the same one who was known by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the same God who made the covenant, the promises with them, and he will use his power to fulfill those covenants, promises to bring them in to the promised land. There is a difference though. If you look at verse 3 for a moment, Abraham and the others in the past did not know him as Lord, which 
When you see that in capitals, it should make you think of Yahweh, his name. Instead, Abraham knew him as God Almighty, or if you look at the footnote, El Shaddai. Now, the moment that you spend any time reading the book of Genesis, you'll see that God gets called Yahweh quite a few times in the text, sometimes even directly by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So is this a contradiction in our Bibles? God called God, sorry, Abraham called God Yahweh, but he didn't know him as that? Or was it that when Moses was writing Genesis, he just slipped the name Yahweh in a few times to make it more interesting? No, of course not. Instead, God is saying to Moses here, even though people may have used the name Yahweh in the past, even though they may have called me Lord, they did not know its meaning. As we'll see in a moment, the name Yahweh will be forever connected with the great rescue of God's people. But for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this rescue was not experienced. They weren't slaves. They didn't need to be redeemed. Rather, they saw God in awesome power. They saw God bring children from barren wombs. They saw God protecting them in battle against impossible odds. They even saw God destroy cities. God revealed himself to them in his actions as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. But the Israelites of Moses' time were about to learn a fuller picture of what God is like. It was not a totally full picture by a long way, but it was still a fuller picture. But just because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not have a complete picture of God didn't mean that their knowledge of him was invalid. Or the knowledge of God as Yahweh replaced the old knowledge of God as El Shaddai. This isn't God changing his identity to meet the latest fashions. Neither does it mean that the promises of God that were made then were being replaced. Verse 4 is explicit in that. I also established my covenant with them. And in verse 5, I have remembered my covenant. He knows the situation his people are in. He hears their groaning. God has remembered and he is going to keep all of his covenant promises. Far from scrapping them, God is doing the opposite. The promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled by God revealing himself as Yahweh. The truth of God as Yahweh builds on the foundations of faith that God has revealed to Abraham and others. The God of Genesis is the God of Exodus. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, is the God that we worship today. He hasn't changed, but he has revealed more about himself it's why you need the whole Bible to get a full picture of who God is. But it's also a wonderful truth. God hasn't changed throughout the generations. And so he hasn't forgotten or broken any of his covenants. The New Testament describes us Christians as being children of Abraham. In a very real way, the covenant promises made to Abraham apply to all of us who are in Christ. But even greater is that there is an underlying promise of grace which the covenant of Abraham was based on. The Lord has gracefully promised all those who put their faith in him will have eternal life 
and blessing. And God will fulfill his covenant promises for Abraham and for us. Whenever we see promises anywhere in the Bible, we can have confidence that they have either been fulfilled or they will be fulfilled. We don't always know when promises will come about. It was, after all, several hundred years between Abraham and Moses. But the groans of God's people do not go unnoticed. If God feels distant to you this week, the truth is he isn't. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten the promises he's made to you in his word. You are not abandoned. You are never abandoned by God because he is the God who always keeps his covenant promises. So God reminds Moses that he is in control, that he will remember his covenant with the Israelites. And now he reminds him that he is the God who judges and redeems. In verse 6, God gives a message to the people of Israel to reassure them and explain what new things they will know about God as Yahweh. We get a sense of how important this knowledge of who Yahweh is by the sheer number of times God repeats in this passage, I am Lord, or I am Yahweh. To know Yahweh is to know who God is, his character and how he will act. In fact, God makes seven promises between verses 6 and 8 about what he will do. Again and again, he repeats, I will, I will. Just Look at those three verses now, verses 6 to 8. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land. I will give it to you for, for a possession I am the Lord. The Israelites will know who the Lord is because they will be able to look back at all the things that he has done. They will remember these I will statements and remember God really did deliver them. He really did fulfill each one of those promises. Wherever we are, Whatever has happened, God's people can always look back and see how the Lord has acted to save them in history. Now, many of these promises are things which Moses had heard before. They're promises which had been made at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Some of them are even promises which had been heard by Abraham in the book of Genesis. They'd heard the promise of the land. They'd heard the promise of delivery from slavery. They'd heard the promise that they would be God's people once before. It doesn't make any of these promises any less wonderful, but there is something new here. Just again, please look at your text for a moment. Notice the speech to the Israelites begins with verse 6 with, I am the Lord. And it ends in verse 8 with, I am the Lord. In verse 6, it says, I will bring you out. And in verse 
8, it says, I will bring you two. The two halves of God's statements mirror each other. And again, in verse 6, I will deliver you from being slaves. Mirrored in verse 7, I will take you as my own people. They will go from belonging to Pharaoh to belonging to God. Now, unlike us, the Lord never makes mistakes when he speaks. And this mirrored pattern is meant to draw us to the central statements. It's like two sides of a mountain reaching a pinnacle. And the pinnacle here is that God will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. In other words, the Israelites will know who Yahweh is because he is the one who worked to redeem them via acts of judgment. Redemption and judgment always go together. God frees the one in slavery and he judges the slave master. The people of God are brought home. The enemies of God are conquered. And this was glorious, good news to Moses and the Israelites. God is in control. He has not forgotten them. In fact, he is planning to defeat the Egyptians. And this victory will be a reminder of God's character and love for them forever. But this pattern does not end in Exodus. It continues all the way through to today. Doesn't it point so clearly to the cross of Christ? where we see Yahweh's character revealed again, the cross where the sin which enslaved us, making us enemies of God, keeping us from him, was taken onto himself by Jesus. And God judged it, destroyed its power, freeing us and taking us as his people. It's the same principle. The sin which helped us Captive is judged and we are redeemed. The wonder of the gospel. Unchanged since Exodus. In fact, unchanged since the foundations of the world. A constant reminder of God's glory and righteousness. And it continues on into the future as well. One day God will judge all evil in this world. He will redeem the whole of his creation. God's justice will be done. If you are evil, if you're an enemy of God and have not been redeemed by Christ, then that day will be a terrifying day. The bullying boss, the human trafficker, the dictator, all who are still in their sins will meet God's perfect judgment. But... For God's people and the rest of creation, it will be a glorious, wonderful day. The whole of heaven and earth is renewed. It is cleansed. And whatever the oppression, whatever the cause of evil, it will not last. It is always temporary in God's plan. Because Yahweh, our God is the God who judges and redeems. Well, finally, let us move on to our last point. The God who doesn't need our help. 
And it seems that this revelation of God, from what we see in the passage, has reassured Moses enough. And in verse 9, he's obedient, and he goes on to tell the Israelites what he has just been told. Given the wonderful news we've had so far, that God rules, that God keeps his covenant, that all the promises we've heard about what Yahweh will do for his people, we might expect an excited response from the Israelites. But instead, verse 9 tells us they did not listen to Moses. It goes on to tell us the reason for this sinful reaction was their spirits were broken. They'd been overcome by slavery. Now, imagine that you are an Israelite. From your point of view, you've, had, you've heard these kind of promises before. You've had to work exhausting and back-breaking labor your entire life. And because of what has happened previously, your workload has got worse, not better. How can you possibly raise your hopes up and risk them being dashed a second time? Well, the same thing happens today. The promises of God are told to someone and they're ignored. If you've ever shared your faith with someone, you know that sometimes people will walk away or even give you abuse rather than hear the promises of God and trust in them. Even worse, we who are Christians and should know better can do exactly the same thing. The pressures of this world build up. We can't see any further ahead than tomorrow or the next deadline. We start to panic. We get stressed. We ignore all the promises that God has made us. So let's just look at how God responds in verses 10 and 11. God continues his rescue plan. Moses is sent to speak to Pharaoh to demand the release of God's people. The fact that somebody ignores God's promises or refuses to listen to him does not stop God from fulfilling those promises. As I said at the beginning, God needs no one's permission to accomplish his work. When Jesus paid for your sins on the cross 2,000 years ago, did he ask for your permission first? No. God always acts first. Even if we are unfaithful, he is faithful. If you realize that you have been ignoring God, be assured God has not been ignoring you. But unfortunately, this refusal of the Israelites to listen to Moses brings up all his old fears again. If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Just as he did at the, just as he did at the burning bush, Moses says to God, he isn't good enough to do what God has asked him to do. In fact, he says, I speak with faltering lips. Not only does he feel inadequate, but he feels unworthy, unfit. He doesn't even feel physically capable to be a representative of God. But the problem is that Moses is looking at himself to complete the task, when he should be looking at God. It's God's power which will result in the promises being fulfilled, not Moses' power. Now, isn't Moses' reaction something that we ourselves do? We feel inadequate for the jobs which we have been called to. 
by the Lord. We look at our own abilities and we say, Jesus, I can't help you with this. I'm not strong enough. I don't have enough faith. I'm not bold enough. I don't have the ability. I don't have the skill. Just find someone else if you want to get this completed. Have you ever felt like that? And to be truthful, we are inadequate for the work that God has called us to do. We are weak. We are stupid. We are sinners. But the point isn't that God has chosen you because you make up for an inadequacy on his heart behalf. There's nothing that God needs from us in that respect. Instead, he's involving you in his work like a father involves his children. It's not about your ability. It's about his. Have you ever baked or done any cooking with young children? Have you ever said to a young child, maybe a three or four-year-old, or, you know, do you want to come help me bake? Now, you do it, don't you? Because you want to include them. Nobody says to a three-year-old, come into the kitchen with me because you think, now they are the next contestant for the Great British Bake Off. It just doesn't happen. In fact, involving them creates more difficulties. You've got to clean up mess that you didn't realize you had before. You've got to correct their mistakes when they accidentally do the wrong thing. But you do it because you want to involve them, because you love them. And you want to do the activity together. Well, it's similar with us. God is using us in his work as a blessing to us. He isn't dependent on us. But he does choose to include us. And we are supposed to be dependent on him. Look at how God responds to Moses. His doubts are not enough to stop God's promises. Verse 13, God speaks to him again and sends him him and his brother Aaron to go and speak to Pharaoh. The Lord doesn't need our abilities. He wants our obedience. He wants us to do what he has called us to do, whether we think we're up to the task or not. He isn't the God who needs our help. He's the God who includes us in his work. Well, get to the end of that passage and the stage is now set for a mighty battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And well, we all know, don't we, that God wins that battle and the people are set free. And in fact, we know that all the promises that God makes in this passage are fulfilled. Praise him. But as we just finish this morning, let's look again at how God answers Moses and dealt with his fears. If we ever want to ask, what kind of God do we have? We can know that he is the Lord, the God who reigns, the God who keeps his covenant promises, the God who judges and redeems, the God who doesn't need our help, but includes us in his work. We don't know what the future will hold in the short term, 
we know that it probably won't get easier for us as Christians at the moment. And the plans of God on a day-to-day basis are a mystery to us. But we know what he has commanded us to do. And we know the God we worship. The God who is always in control of events, no matter how dark they seem. The God who loves his people and bears with them through everything. This is the God of Exodus who so loved his people that he went to the cross in order to redeem them and who will keep them safe for all eternity. This is the only God, the God worth living our lives for, the one we can trust and the one that we seek to obey. This is Yahweh, the Lord our God. Let us pray.